Hello, this is Lafayette Faust, creator of the Nevermore Hollows podcast. Thank you for making the show a success. Please take a moment to subscribe, give five stars, comment, and share the show with your friends. It's the best way to help us grow and to be able to continue to provide quality horror content. Also, please support our new art director, Chris Madman Goins, at Black Sheep Studios TN on Instagram. He has some amazing Nevermore Hollows art for sale, signed by the both of us, as well as many other original pieces I think you're going to love. Now, for you horror hounds who like to have a good laugh, I invite you to check out my other podcast. It's called The Three Uncool Cats. In it, my two friends and I sit in a basement and discuss music, movies, and whatever else comes into our warped minds. I would really appreciate it if you would give it a listen. Now, with that out of the way, I invite you to sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. Welcome back, my dark-minded friends. I hope you've found these sinister vignettes entertaining, and more importantly, enlightening. Every story so far has had a valuable lesson to be learned, starting with the truth that there is a supernatural element to this realm of existence. I call this a truth because... Not only does the good book confirm our battle with spiritual hosts of wickedness, but I have also personally wrestled with quite a few dark entities. But I'm not telling my story here. I am simply telling the history of this spooky little town. Tonight, it is my pleasure to introduce you to a couple of daring young boys, Rory Boudreaux and Stevie Muse. They live in a most depressing community called the Pink Flamingos Trailer Park, which is filled with a motley cast of characters who just might not be what they seem. On a recent muggy summer night, Rory and Stevie heard carnival music coming from Trailer 66. Knowing full well that they should just leave it alone, their boyish curiosity got the best of them. And you know what they say about curiosity. It can be deadly. I am Lafayette Faust, and I am Nevermore's historian. I tell the grim stories that most of the townsfolk would rather keep buried in their basements. So, with that nugget planted into your brain, I ask that you sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. The full moon was a milky dead eye set in the face of the dark sky. It cast its anemic glow down on the trailer park that Rory Boudreaux and Stevie Muse called home. They had been friends since Rory and his mom moved into the lime green trailer 
two rows back from Stevie's a few weeks ago. Stevie had found it difficult to make friends in the odd community that was the Pink Flamingos trailer park. There were other kids, but they were mean and separated into various cliques. And Rory had made it easy when he walked up to Stevie and introduced himself. Okay, Rory said after explaining that he and his mom had just moved from Louisiana. Who be the weirdos and the freaks in this place? Stevie liked Rory's directness and found his Cajun patois intoxicating. He had never heard anyone speak in anything other than a southern drawl. Well, there's a lot of weirdos and freaks here. Why? Do you want to steer clear of them? Heck no, Rory said in his swampy slur. I believe they be the ones we need to get to know. Stevie found this to be a radical idea. His mom had always told him to stay away from what she called the strange folks who lived in the park. How so? You ever hear that saying, you keep your friends close but your enemies closer? Yeah, Stevie said. Well then, I believe if that be true, you need to keep the weirdos and the freaks even closer. That way, you don't have to worry as much when they snap. If they like you and they see you as aight, then maybe they leave you alone. Besides, watching the freaks is better than TV, no? Stevie had laughed at that and could even see the warped logic behind Rory's philosophy. They had been inseparable ever since, and in that short span of time, they had become as close as brothers. They both had rusty bikes with chipped paint which was all their single mothers could afford, and they rode them everywhere. They were on their way home on this muggy night after riding into town. They pedaled around a turn on the country road, and Rory said, Why did they call that town Nevermore? Miss Carmelita, my third grade teacher, she told us the folks who founded this town back in the 1600s came over from England on a ship that had been caught in a terrible storm. When they landed here, they decided to call the town Nevermore because they would never again travel by ship. They pedaled in silence for a bit. Then Rory said, I thought they might have named it after that Edgar Allan Poe story. Nah, Stevie said. A lot of folks think that when they hear the name. That town sure is strange, though. Yeah, Stevie said, but this whole county is strange. You know that. You've only been here for three weeks, and look at some of the things we've seen. The Pink Flamingos trailer park sat five miles outside the town of Nevermore, nestled up against Dunwich State Park. The park consisted of ancient woods that seemed dark and ominous even on days with clear skies and bright sun. And Nevermore, a creepy little coastal town that sat between the menacing park and the ocean, was the strangest town Rory had ever seen. That was saying a lot, considering Rory had spent much of his young life in and around New Orleans, which had a rich history steeped in the paranormal. 
In the short time since he had moved here, he had witnessed strange lights in the sky, terrifying howls from the surrounding countryside, and listened to that crazy old farmer, Clive Edmondson, tell stories about how he kept finding his livestock dead and drained of blood. I guess that'd be right, Rory said. They rounded another lazy curve and saw the pink and teal neon sign that sat at the entrance of the trailer park. It looked just like one of those old signs from mid-century hotels. There were two flamingos, one on each end, outlined in bright pink neon. In cursive script, the pink flamingo's trailer park was outlined in glowing teal. Rory had noticed a problem with the sign on his first night. Some of the letters glowed twice as bright as the others. If you read only those brighter letters, the sign declared, In Flames Trailer Park. How long did this sign be like that? I've lived here for five years, Stevie said. It's always been that way. I believe that it describes this place just right. Rory said. Maybe it don't need to be fixed. The boys pedaled on in silence, swinging off the county road and into the sprawling trailer park, which was laid out in a large grid of intersecting lanes named with a nod toward the space age of the 1950s. They turned onto Mercury Lane, then made a left onto Aldrin Lane, they were careful to pay close attention to their surroundings. For reasons they could not ascertain, it was surprisingly easy to get lost in the trailer park, like you would in an expansive maze. Their mothers both worked third shift at Winona's Waffle Hut, which was where some of the weirdest things in this town seemed to occur. This left the boys with a lot of time on their hands. They used that time to explore, and they especially loved exploring at night. I can't wait to get home so we can read our comics, Stevie said. He glanced down at the bag draped on his handlebars, which contained four of his favorite horror comics. I shall do like that comic store, Rory said, looking down at his own bag full of comics. Why do they call it Romero's? It's named after George Romero, Stevie said, the Night of the Living Dead director. Rory smiled his appreciation. That works for me. The Pink Flamingo's trailer park did not have any street lights, and most of the trailers at this hour were dark, though a few still had interior lights on. Some even had strands of lights draped around their lots that gave off eerie glows and cast writhing shadows. Of those loosely hung strands, a surprising number were Christmas lights, which was a sad attempt to give the depressing park a festive feel. They approached the intersection of Aldrin and Apollo when they heard the bouncy melody of music, the kind you would hear on a carnival ride. They pulled to a stop and glanced around, trying to identify from where the music was coming. That's not creepy at all, Stevie said. I mean, there's no carnival and it's almost midnight. 
Rory nodded as he strained to hear. I think it's coming from Trailer 66 over there on Moonshot Lane. Stevie's eyes shot wide. The trailer park consisted of more than a hundred trailers. Even though the tenants were poor, most attempted to keep their homes in good repair. However, some gave up a long time ago, and their lots consisted of run-down trailers and broken cars and waist-high grass. The homes in this park were filled with people with tough luck stories, the kind that could break your heart. Trailer 66, however, was in an advanced state of decay, and Satan lived in Trailer 66, and his story was a dark one. Stan Caleb Delfino, known to the tenants of the Pink Flamingos trailer park as Satan, was a murderer. He had been a carny, traveling from town to town, working on the various rides. He had left the carnival business, settled in Nevermore, and then set about killing and barbecuing nine teenagers over two summers in the mid-1980s. He had led the local police and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation on a gruesome trail during those hot, muggy days. He left a letter at every crime scene, written in the blood of the victim, in which he described every detail of the slaying. He signed those letters as Satan. One hot July night in 87, he walked into the Nevermore Sheriff's Office and turned himself in. He confessed to every murder and claimed that he had been possessed while committing those atrocities. A big city lawyer had taken his case pro bono and helped him evade prison and the electric chair by claiming insanity. The lawyer had gotten him sentenced to 30 years in Evening Star, Nevermore's only sanitarium. Then, the clever lawyer wrote a best-selling book about Stan's crimes and the trial. Being the sneaky serpent that he was, the lawyer then hired an Ivy League-educated psychiatrist to claim that Stan was healed after his 30 years of rehabilitation, and Stan was set free. The sneaky lawyer and his highly educated psychiatrist partner wrote a book together about their experience. It, too, was a bestseller. Once he was free, Satan decided to settle in the Pink Flamingos trailer park, specifically in Trailer 66. I think you're right, Stevie said, straining to hear the music. Do you want to go check it out? Rory asked. Stevie paused. I don't know, Rory. Not only does Satan live there, they say it's haunted. Who is Day? Rory asked. Stevie shrugged. Everybody. How so? Rory asked. Well, Stevie said, considering all the stories. It's said that after he moved into the trailer, some of the cats and dogs around here went missing. So, Rory said, you saying he did something to them? Uh, yeah, Stevie said. You know how serial killers are. They start off with animals, then they move to humans. But do they usually go back to animals after moving up? Rory asked. 
Stevie shrugged again. I don't know. But if he wants to kill but not get caught again, it makes sense he'd go back to animals. Okay, maybe that'd be right, Rory said, but that don't mean the trailer be haunted. Before Satan moved in, spooky sounds came out of there sometimes, Stevie said, and lights. I've seen them. It was usually after midnight, and once I snuck over and saw something big crawling around in the shadows. I couldn't make it out, but it looked misshapen. And then, on top of all that, there's the fact that nobody has seen the old guy for years. If he comes out, it's when nobody is looking. He don't even come out to pay the rent? Nope. Supposedly, his rent is paid every January for the whole year. Hmm, Rory said, finding this interesting. I sure do like a mystery. I say we go investigate. Stevie had become accustomed to the danger that Nevermore and its surroundings harbored. He had also embraced the fact that so many of the terrible things that happened in this place seemed to have a supernatural bent to them. He was not a sissy. He was not afraid. Yet, because he had been alone for so long, he had always been cautious. But now he was emboldened because he had a friend. And it was a friend he liked and a friend he felt he could trust to have his back if things got freaky. Okay, Stevie said. I'm in. Rory gave him a wide smile and pedaled down the lane toward the far end of the park that bumped up against Dunwich Forest. When they reached the end of Aldrin, they turned on the moonshot, which consisted of the most run-down trailers in the park, all of which were empty. No one seemed to want to live that close to a convicted serial killer or the forest where so many folks had gone missing over the years. It sure is dark back here, Stevie said, trying not to sound scared. He glanced over at Rory and saw that he too was rattled that the black trees towered above them, at times completely blocking the moon's anemic light. The boys both had small flashlights fastened to their handlebars with zip ties. They used them at night as headlights. The flashlights usually worked well in this capacity, but now the forest shadows overpowered their feeble beams, allowing only enough light to illuminate a few feet directly ahead. To their left was a long row of ancient oaks, covered in Spanish moss, that lined the lane, separating Moonshot from the rest of the trailer park. To their right lay the long row of dilapidated trailers, all of them empty, except for Trailer 66. Dunwich Forest lay not twenty yards behind that row of decaying trailers. I don't hear no music, Rory said when they stopped in front of the darkened trailer where Satan lived. Stevie was about to respond when the carnival music again began to play. As it did, the windows in Trailer 66 began to glow a deep crimson. The light pulsated in time with the too happy off-kilter melody. Come on, man, Stevie said, the hairs on his arm standing tall. Why did you have to say anything? Sorry, Rory said, his eyes wide. That was not my intent. 
The music got louder, the melody following a deranged time signature, as if attempting to fray the boy's nerves. It rose and dipped and rose again, even louder, the crimson light splattering its visceral glow onto the overgrown lot. Then, suddenly, the music stopped mid-melody, and the lights winked out, leaving a deafening quiet and a blanketing darkness. Yeah, Rory said. This was a bad idea. Let's get. They wrenched their bikes around, ready to run, when the door to Trailer 66 swung slowly open. As it did, they heard crying, stopping them in their tracks. Is that a baby? Rory asked. Sounds like it, Stevie said. The crying was soft, but unmistakably from a baby. They stood astride their bikes, listening, trying to decide what to do. After a few fluttery heartbeats, Stevie said, If that's really a baby in there, we have to help it. Rory stared at the inky blackness that was the open door. I know that. Maybe we can go tell somebody. What if something happens to it while we're trying to convince somebody, Stevie said. I mean, if Satan is in there, he could hide the baby or hurt the baby. Rory kept his eyes on the door. It do seem we need to be taking some action of some sort. Both boys stood listening to the soft crying, trying to work up the nerve to make the first move. Suddenly... The baby squealed in anger or pain or both, then fell silent. Oh man, Stevie said, realizing that if there was in fact a baby inside, it needed immediate help. He stepped off his bike and let it fall to the ground. He began walking toward the trailer. Rory used his kickstand to park his bike and used his pocket knife to cut the flashlight free from the handles. He quickly cut Stevie's flashlight free and jogged to catch up to his friend. They stopped a few feet from the door. Rory turned on his light and shined it into the trailer. Sitting just beyond the door, on the floor, was a baby stroller. Its canopy pulled up, blocking their ability to see inside. Stevie cautiously climbed the three steps and stood in the doorway. Rory stepped up beside him and let the beam of his light wash around the room. The layout seemed to be just like any other trailer. The living room was before them, across from them the kitchen area. A short hallway led from both sides of the kitchen, no doubt to the bedrooms located at each end of the trailer. The place was completely dark, except for Rory's flashlight. Though the stroller was less than six feet from them, they were not yet ready to step inside. They strained to listen for any baby sounds coming from the stroller. I don't hear anything, Stevie said. Rory leaned over the threshold and looked around the room. There was a broken couch to his left. Above it, hanging on the wall, was a mounted goat head. 
Its lifeless eyes stared down at them. Its horns curved up, giving it a demonic appearance. Rory shivered. That ain't right. Stevie's eyes were wide. He pointed his light on the adjacent wall. There hung an unplugged neon sign in the shape of a race car. That may be tacky, but at least it's not scary. Rory kept his light trained on the goat head, as if he didn't trust that it would stay dead. Shine your light over there, he said, indicating the hallway to the left. Stevie complied, but they were only able to see about three feet down the hallway. The carpet was a matted pea-green shag. On the stained wall, someone had scrawled, Creeping Death. Nope, Stevie said. I'm out. He turned to leave, and the baby began to whimper. Oh, man. Stevie glanced back at the stroller and then to Rory. We got to see if that really is a baby, Rory said. We won't rest right if we don't. I know, Stevie sighed. We go together. I'll shine my light around the room, and you keep yours on the stroller. Rory nodded his agreement, and they stepped over the threshold and into the trailer. They paused, listening to the baby's whimpering and for any other sounds coming from the trailer. After a moment of gathering their courage, they stepped over to the stroller. They were unable to see inside. Rory kept the slide on the stroller and motioned for Stevie to pull back the canopy. Stevie took another look around the room to make sure they were still alone, that Satan wasn't lurking in the shadows. Then, with an unsteady hand, he grabbed the canopy and pulled. They looked down into the stroller. Both boys jumped back and cried out in shock. The whimpering was clearly that of a baby. However, what lay inside the stroller was a large black snake, easily four feet long. Its oily black scales glistened in the beam of Rory's flashlight. The snake was coiled as it whimpered. Before either of the boys could say anything, the snake raised its angular head opened its mouth and began to wail. Let's go, Rory said, and both boys dashed for the door, hearts racing, the snake wailing its baby cries after them. Just as they reached the door, it slammed shut by some unknown force. Rory grabbed the doorknob and yanked. Nothing happened. It was as if the door were welded into place. Oh man, oh man, oh man, Stevie said. Hurry, open it. He glanced back at the stroller. He could see the snake's head poking up, staring at them, crying louder, sounding as if it were a starving baby. I'm trying, Rory yelled. He yanked again. It'd be no good. This door ain't gonna budge. What do we do now? Stevie said. The boys turned and shone their lights around the room, looking for a way out. The windows in an old trailer were not big enough for them to crawl through. However, Across from them, in the kitchen, was a door that led out to the back of the lot. They exchanged a glance, then looked back at the snake in the baby stroller. It had not moved. We gotta try, Rory said, reading the question on Stevie's face. Go, Stevie said. 
The boys took off, running around the stroller, Stevie on the left and Rory on the right. They shot into the kitchen, and Stevie grabbed the doorknob and yanked. It, too, seemed welded into place. They turned and looked back at the snake. It had turned its head toward them, watching them, now only whimpering. Both boys were terrified. The hairs on the back of their necks and on their arms stood up. Both shivered as their blood ran cold. Then their flashlights went out, leaving them in complete darkness. The snake stopped whimpering. It became completely quiet. The neon sign on the wall suddenly lit up, casting the room in a crimson glow. What they had both thought of originally as a race car was revealed to be a hearse drawn in neon with the words, Eat the Children. The carnival music began to play again, however this time at only half speed. The melody no longer joyfully bounced. It dragged like a funeral dirge for the insane. The music was loud, but not loud enough that they had to yell to be heard. Where's the snake? Stevie asked, looking over at the stroller, which was now empty. Oh, man, Rory said. We gotta get out of here. The crimson neon glow illuminated down both hallways. They both looked to their left and saw that the hallway extended about 30 feet and had a closed door on each side. About 20 feet down the hallway to their right was a door, presumably to the master bedroom. It was slightly ajar, and there was only darkness beyond. We have a door that leads outside from my mom's bedroom, Rory said. I say we date that way. He pointed to the right, toward the master bedroom with the open door. Stevie hesitated, working up his courage when they heard the snake. It was behind them, whimpering as if it were a hungry baby. Both boys turned and saw that the snake had slithered up onto the counter beside the sink. It reared its head, opened its mouth, and began to wail. The boys quickly stepped away from the kitchen and the crying snake. Rory led the way toward the bedroom while Stevie followed and kept an eye on the snake. Rory stepped up to the door and tried his flashlight again. It did not work. Neither did Stevie's when he tried his. With a frustrated look on his face, Rory used his flashlight to push the door open. As it swung wide, a neon sign hanging on the far wall blinked on, washing the room in electric blue. The sign was in the shape of an eye, with blue swirls typically used to show that someone was attempting to hypnotize or mesmerize. The neon script spelled out, You are tasty. The neon blue combined with the crimson glow spilling in from the hallway and made everything in the room seem hyper-real, as if everything had more than three dimensions. There was a bed containing a mattress with dark stains. It had a headboard and a footboard with only three of four corner posts remaining. From one of the headboard posts dangled a set of handcuffs. One of the posts on the fretboard had a rope tied to it. There was a small bookshelf against the wall next to the bathroom door. 
It contained only two books, one of which was a collection of barbecue recipes and a collection of what appeared to be the skulls from small animals arranged on each side of a human skull. On the floor between the shelf and the door sat a battered bowling pin. It was painted to resemble a clown, and it was smeared with dried blood. There was no door leading to the outside. As they stood, the snake wailing behind them, the bathroom door slowly swung open, and Stan Delfino, the man who called himself Satan, stepped out. He stood before them, wearing only a pair of cut-off denim shorts, frayed at the edges. He was lean and muscular for a man nearing sixty. His hair was short in the front, but the back draped around his shoulders. His eyes reflected no light and were set deep in his wrinkled face. His chest and arms were covered in tattoos. Most were logos of various heavy metal bands and NASCAR teams. However, there was one large tattoo scrawled across his chest. Bold Gothic script spelled out, Eater of Souls. If he were shocked to see the boys, he did not show it. Instead, he stood staring at them for a long moment. Then, he smiled. They saw that his teeth were filed into sharp points. Rory's heart slammed against his ribcage. Stevie's blood ran so cold he shivered, causing his teeth to rattle. They turned to run back down the hallway, but stopped dead in their tracks when they saw that the crying snake was slowly slithering down the hallway, blocking their path. Somehow, the snake had grown. When they first saw the snake, it appeared to be four feet long. Now it was easily twice that size. Its body was thick and powerful as it slithered toward them. Rory glanced at Stevie. The carnival music swelled in its slurring melody. The blue neon began to pulse. You are tasty. You are tasty. Neither decision was a good one. Try to get past the snake or deal with Satan. They glanced at the snake, which was coiling itself into a serpentine barrier in the hallway. They glanced back at Satan with his sharp-toothed smile. Their decision was made for them when Satan leaned down and picked up the blood-stained bowling pin. The carnival music slurred on, growing even louder. The boys turned and ran down the hallway, straight toward the snake. It reared its massive head, preparing to strike, but Rory ran to the right of the snake, Stevie to the left, confusing the massive serpent. Both boys made it past without any harm. When they made it to the main room of the trailer, which was still drenched in a crimson neon glow, Rory grabbed the front doorknob and gave it a shake. Stevie tried the kitchen door. Both were locked tight. They turned their attention back toward the master bedroom. Satan stepped out of the room, pushed the snake aside, 
and came at the boys, raising the bloodied, clown-painted bowling pin high. Stevie grabbed Rory's arm and pulled him toward the hallway leading toward the other end of the trailer. They made it three steps when the door to the right burst open and out lumbered a massive dog. It was black and had a large misshapen head with one glaring eye in the center of its skull. The dog roared loud enough to be heard above the carnival music. The boys stopped in their tracks. The dog was closing in on one side, Satan and his crying snake on the other. Stevie's eyes were wide and glassy with fear. Rory's mouth was dry and his heart hammered in his chest. Rory gave his friend a knowing look, one that said, this is the end. Stevie saw that look and understood that there was nothing left to do but fight. They both knew that they would not survive, but giving up was not an option. Rory turned toward Satan and the snake and raised his flashlight, preparing to use it as a weapon. Stevie raised his and turned toward the massive black dog with the cyclopean eye. The dog jumped at Stevie. Satan and the snake ran at Rory. Just then, the front door opened and a brilliant beam of light cut through the trailer. The crimson neon sign blinked off and Satan and the snake and the dog vanished. The carnival music stopped in mid-slur. Rory and Stevie squinted into the light, hearts pounding. Neither of them said anything due to their bewilderment as to what had just happened. Then, a familiar deep voice boomed. What are you boys doing in here? The boys turned their attention from the light and looked around the trailer. There was no sign of the dog, the snake, or Satan. The neon sign on the wall was no longer a hearse with the call to eat the children. It was simply a sign in the shape of a race car with a popular NASCAR team logo. Mr. Ivanovich, is that you? Stevie asked. Mr. Ivanovich was the trailer park's custodian. He kept to himself and always seemed to be watching the tenants, as if he didn't trust them. He claimed to be 70, but looked 10 years younger. He spoke with no hint of a Russian accent and had been the custodian since before Stevie moved in. He made sure that the dumpsters were emptied every Tuesday and that minor repairs were made on the trailers when necessary. You know it is, he replied. What are you boys doing in here? Come on now, get out of here. Mr. Ivanovich turned his light away from them and pointed it down the stairs that led onto the high grass. The boys ran past him, down the stairs, and across the small lot to their bicycles. Mr. Ivanovich shut the door to the trailer 66 and walked over to them. He took a closer look at them, his wrinkled face scrunched up. You both look like you're scared nearly to death. What was going on inside there? I heard the loudest racket, like you boys were running all over the trailer. You saved us, Stevie said in a rush. Satan was about to get us. He was going to kill us with a bowling pin and eat us. And he had this big old snake, Rory added. It was crying like a baby. It was getting bigger. 
And there was this huge black dog with one eye, Stevie said. He was going to tear us apart. Then, both boys said at the same time, and the carnival music. Mr. Ivanovich scratched his military buzz cut as he listened. Then he said, What the hell are you two rambling on about? Have you been smoking something? The boys looked at each other in disbelief. Rory said, You didn't hear no carnival music? Mr. Ivanovich shook his head. No, just you two running through the trailer like you were a couple of crazy rats. You didn't see the neon lights glowing through the windows? Stevie asked. Mr. Ivanovich again shook his head. No. Tell me now. What's going on here? The boys quickly told their story. When they were finished, Mr. Ivanovich took a long moment to consider what he'd been told. Finally, he said, Boys, Stan Delfino died three weeks ago. I personally found his body and called out the sheriff and the coroner. The boys didn't know what to say. After a long moment, Rory asked, Sir, how come we didn't know that? You can call me Ivan, Mr. Ivanovich said. I decided to keep it quiet. There wasn't any need to cause a stir. It was on a Saturday. I saw you boys ride out on your bikes that morning, so you weren't here when it all happened. And the sheriff and the coroner were able to keep it all quiet. The only person I know who saw it was old Albert McCoy. You know he can't say anything since his stroke. Rory and Stevie were dumbfounded. Ivan shined his light back at the trailer. That trailer has been empty, with no electricity for the past three weeks. And I've been checking it every evening to make sure that there isn't anyone squatting in it. That's how I come to find you two boys. I was checking to see if it was still empty. You want me to go in and see if there's a snake or a dog or a crazy man with a bowling pin? Rory and Stevie shared a look. In that moment of eye contact... They were able to communicate to each other that what they had just experienced was a supernatural event. Of the kind that only happens in this seemingly godforsaken trailer park. Finally, Rory turned to Ivan. No, sir. We don't think it would be wise for you to go back into that trailer. We think that trailer might need to be burnt to the ground. They some bad juju in that place. Ivan gave the boys a solemn, knowing look. He took a final glance at the trailer, then said, I've been in this place long enough to believe you two boys. Now go. Get along. Go home. Don't tell anyone what you've seen here tonight. I'll figure it all out in the morning. It might be that this trailer does find itself burned. The milky dead eye of the moon looked down on the boys as they grabbed their bikes and pedaled off down the dark lane that led away from Trailer 66. After they turned the corner and could no longer see the trailer or Mr. Ivanovich, Rory said, I ain't gonna lie. I done thought we was gonna die. Stevie glanced over and nodded. Me too, he said. They pedaled on in silence for another minute. Then Rory said, At least this place ain't boring.